You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Humanize Me, or welcome to Humanize Me for the first time if this is your first time. I'm Bart Campolo. This is my podcast. And if you're looking for a title, I'm sort of in between titles right now. I was the humanist chaplain at the University of Southern California. I am on my way back to Cincinnati, Ohio after three years of chaplaining at USC. And uh, I'll get a new title when I get back there. But in the meantime, you're just going to have to love me without a title if you love me at all. And uh, I think you're going to love me today because I actually... I'm going to share with you a conversation I had with Megan Rosenblum, who I, I know through USC. I, Megan's the Associate Director for Collection Resources at the Norris Medical Library at USC. She's a medical librarian, which is kind of cool, and she manages those collections. And in the course of that, she figured out some stuff about nerdy, rare book stuff that led her into figuring out some even more important stuff about death. And so she's also one of the directors of the Death Salon, which is a very cool gathering that happens all over the world periodically. And and in the conversation, we're going to talk about it and you're going to dig it. And you know what? As I was getting ready to do this show or, or do this intro, I was realizing, dang, I do not have nearly enough women on the program. I was looking at, I had, I, I've lined up a bunch of, uh, of interviews that I've already recorded and I just need to sort of roll them out. And, and they're all with white men. And I'm a white man. And, and that could be a problem. Um, I mean, and part of it is that white men have all these privileges so they get to write and, 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 and do stuff that, that makes them easy to find for podcasts. But part of the problem is I must not be looking real hard for people who are not white men. So listen, you guys know, <laughs> you guys, huh? Um, you folks know that you can always reach me at bartcampolo.org. That's the website. Um, and so if you've got suggestions of people you think I should have on the podcast, people you think would be good for me to talk with, I'd love it. I mean, I a lot of the people that I've had over the last year or two, there are people that people have suggested to me. So go for it. And especially go for it if they're not white men. Because like, I, don't get me wrong, I love white men. Some of my best, my best friends are white, white men. But um, I think we're going to have a more humanizing conversation if we involve more different kinds of human beings. So... At least this week, you're going to get a very different kind of human being because Megan Rosenblum is not just a woman, but she is also coming at this thing from a really unique angle. And, uh, and I just loved, I, mean, I, went over, I went over to a place in North Hollywood, or not, not north, north Los, northern part of Los Angeles. I went over to her house because she had just had a baby and, and, she, and she's raising, a, raising her daughter and, and she, she wanted to do the interview uh, out in her garage, a la Mark Marin. Uh, hers is a pretty cool garage, by the way. She just fixed it up. It's really beautiful. And, uh, 
And as we're sitting there talking, you know, we talked for a long time before we started the podcast, and then we talked for a long time afterwards because, I don't know, there was something, there's something special about not just what she's doing and what she cares about, but the place she's at in her life, being a new mom, um, all that stuff. It was just, I don't know, it was pretty, it was pretty exciting for me. And so I hope it's exciting for you, and I'll catch you on the other side. Here's me and Megan Rosenblum. We trademarked the name Death Salon because people kept like putting on a thing and calling it that. Um, and there was like people would get confused because like, oh, I'm going to throw a death salon at my local like VFW or something like that. And but our death salons are like, you know, there's certain people you expect. There's a certain like level so almost a quality yeah it's a quality thing um and so to kind of protect that idea the idea of it it's not like oh we're making so much money off the name or anything like that but just to protect the idea that if you saw the name death salon you know exactly what you're gonna get uh we we got it like trademarked so that people can't use it but then things will come up where it's like oh you know the sheboygan death salon and we have to write the person be like hey you know whatever like, if you want to do something where you guys get together and talk about that, that's awesome. And please do that. But just call it literally anything else. So I'm like, call it Corpse Chat or like whatever, nice. you know. And are they modeling it, do you think, on what you're doing? Well, on the uh, on the thing that they think right. that we're doing. Because most of the time when people try to do an event that has our same name, they've never been to our event. And they don't really know what it's like. And so they, they, a which lot is of, a, which is a perfect segue for me to ask you, yeah. what's it like? Because like, like? I, I saw your video, mm-hmm. I saw that the, the video on your website, the London one. Yeah, yeah. Is that what it's like? Uh, yeah, I think it's a pretty good representation. But that one was also only our second one. How and many? So, have you, how many have you done? We're on number seven. Okay, so so if you were going to amalgamate them all and yeah. say like, what's that thing I can expect if I go to a death salon? What is a death salon? It's like. Um, it's sort of like a conference, but it's also like a public event. Like it's sort of more entertaining than you would imagine, and it's it's the sort of very well-oiled machine of an event. And there are a lot of different things going on. Do but- people split up? I mean, I got the impression like that there are a hundred people or whatever sitting facing forward. There's a mic at the front, and different people take that mic. A lot of the time, yeah, but it's, it, so it's more like 250 to 300 people, okay. and it's, um, we have a bunch of different events that go along with it, but the ch- the main chunk of it is often talks or performances where there's someone in the front and a whole, the whole same group of people the whole time, uh, but we also have things like field trips and all different um, nighttime, like cocktail parties and so, like, things like that. Is it a weekend? Yeah, usually. It's okay. usually a multiple day thing. Sometimes we've done one day events. Uh, we did one at the Getty Villa that was really great. Um, where it's just, you know, eight to four or something like that. It's like the whole day. Uh, but often, because we're only doing them once a year and we do them in different cities all the time, in order to get the most like kind of bang for our buck, we try to do it over a weekend or a couple days. And it's funny, every time we think that we, oh, this is too much stuff in one, you know, thing, the 
what we, the feedback we always get is like, can we have more of this? Can we have more of that? Yeah. And we're like, wow, okay. So for instance, uh, this time, this one coming up, this one coming up in Seattle is, uh, it's technically we say it's two days, <laughs> you know? Um, but it's kind of more than that. But on, so on Friday, there is a, um, uh, a sort of, um, field trip like a a tour of a cemetery and stuff and there was only like a certain amount of tickets available for that as atlas obscura runs that like section so it's like 30 people and then friday night there's a theater performance and people can go to that and they we had like you know big discount ticket for that and and there's a talk after like a conversation piece after the uh theater performance then saturday and sunday are like the full death salon days where you get in at eight you get your coffee you watch all the all the talks and coming up presentations yeah and then but this time at lunch we're breaking people up into groups and so when you bought your ticket it was logistically a lot of work for me but i think it should work out pretty well where when you bought your ticket it's like i want to eat lunch with a home funeral person or a oh, so it's sort of like each table has a cool thing person i can interact with yeah so there's like a person that we have leading the small like lunchtime thing but it's really just a conversation with the with that person like a like a lunch table right so if you're interested in you know death academics or something like you can have lunch with an academic or whatever and it was it was pretty fun watching people react online when they were like they're like don't make me choose death salon i won't you know i thought that was really it, it was what i wanted you know but then the next day there's going to be kind of like classroom discussions like more of a breakouts uh yeah where it's probably going to be like i don't know four classrooms going with mm-hmm. different topics and wherever you want to eat lunch you just grab your lunch and go sit in the in the classroom and so, so it's a little conferency little con- that's the most conferency thing we've done really it's, and that's a new element so this is new but then you know saturday night we're having basically like a fundraiser cocktail party thing where there's a illustrated lecture but then it's all pet themed so we're gonna have cocktails and therapy dogs to pet and like someone doing pet memorial drawings and all sorts of pet stuff and it's raising funds for the order of the good death which is our newly minted sort of overarching nonprofit. And also the pet partners group that does the grief uh, therapy dogs and stuff. And so there's always just all these different okay, so things going on. Let me interrupt you. Yeah. I'm going to back you up. Because like we're talking about this event that you and your partner, Caitlin. Yeah, Caitlin Doty. Mm-hmm. Who's a mortician. Yes. And you guys put this thing together, started putting these together a few years ago. Uh-huh. But there's some background here. Like we didn't just like wake up one day and go like, Desalon. Right. Like, how did you, like, like, take me on the journey to this. Like, where were you when this started in your life? Because what, I'm going to interrupt myself. Yeah. Because on some level, these death salons are about, if I understand them right, they're about helping people sort of stop denying and sort of embrace the fundamental reality of being a human being, which is you're going to die. Yeah. So, so, so you're, you're doing this like, I don't to help people to, to cause them to grow yeah to, to, to do something good in their lives where did this start for you yeah so 
kind of to back to talk about that idea of like why we do death salon and why people come. So I think what I was trying to say is that it's more, it, it's surprising. Like we have all these moving parts of, of the death salon and it's a huge logistical thing to put together. But the reason why we do it that way is that the people who come to death salon, they come for all different reasons, really. So overarching is that sort of death denial problem that we have in America and trying to address that. But the reasons why people are drawn to it are different. Some people are drawn to it because of a personal like loss that sort of shook something loose. A lot of people are drawn to it because they're interested in the profession and they want to work in the industry in some fashion or work with death in some way. And they kind of want to get a feel for what that might be like or where they might fit within that idea. Right. Um, Because we represent so many different ways to do that work, whether it's on a volunteer basis or, you know, traditional funeral, you know, funeral industry or a death doula or whatever. There are so many different ways you can work in that hospice. I would imagine. Yeah. Hospice. We have a lot of hospice workers. We have a lot of social workers. There's a lot of donation people. Yes. Yeah. So many things. Um, all the health sciences, there's just a lot. Um, Uh, grief people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Counselors, all sorts of stuff. And then, but then there's also kind of this, some people are just curious about death and the things surrounding death and the art and, and sort of cultural products and aesthetics that come out of it. And so, and then they're often made to feel weird because they're interested in it. And when they come to a death salon, they have a community. So when you, when you look around it's interesting because people think, oh, it's just like a goth party or something. And there are definitely goths there, right? But it's not just that. It's You look around, there are a lot of different faces, people from different ages. And the more events we do, the more diverse it gets every time. Um, but what it started as was basically a lot of women who look a lot like me, who are a certain age and certain aesthetic, you know, because that was just the group of friends who sort of started it. And then it just branched out now, now, now. And now we're just, we have a lot of people kind of under the umbrella of, of death positivity and all that. When we started death salon, we didn't even call it death positivity that like there, there's a lot that's happened in this short of time frame. Well, you know, and not just with you, like, that's the weird thing. Like I, I just brought this book that I've, checked out of the library the other day, The Consolations of Mortality. I'm sure you know this book um, uh, by Andrew Stark. And it's Making Sense of Death. I'm looking at your bookshelf. Yeah, I'm looking to see if it's on here. I I feel like it might... Do people send you books? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, which is awesome. And I, as a librarian, I will always support that. But this is actually my death shelfie. This is all death related. And the first thing on there is Ernest Becker, which was the first death book I ever read. Mm -hmm. But then, like, I had a woman on the podcast a few... Uh, last year named Ann Newman. Yeah, she was, she spoke, wait, she, wait, Ann Newman. Okay, wait, sorry. The, she was, wrote a book called The Good Death. Yeah, okay, yeah. I am familiar with that book. But um, I was thinking of someone else who, another Ann who spoke at Deslon. She didn't speak to Deslon, but I'm familiar with her. She would be though in, I mean, I think she would be in your stream. I feel like there's a whole lot of people that are asking the question, if we didn't hide this from our lives, Mm-hmm. what how might how might we embrace it how might we cope with it how might we wrap our heads around it i feel like that's in the air right now yeah yeah i mean well part of it is also just 
you know, people like Caitlin out there doing, you know, Caitlin's book became a New York Times bestseller. And it's sort of what is that book? It's called um, uh, Smoke Gets in Your Eyes and Other Lessons from the Crematory. Yeah, that's it. And it's a memoir. I mean, on my bookshelf here, I have a I even have it in French and stuff. I've got a couple (laughs) uh, uh, coffees here. But um, so Caitlin's book, I think, kind of broke something open. I mean, there was starting to be conversation in a certain way. But then for something that's a memoir by a young person about death and her interactions in the death industry, for her to kind of break through the mainstream in that way and, you know, be on Fresh Air and be on all these shows, I think then it sort of showed other people that this was something people were interested in and then it just i feel like the floodgates opened after that and there were all these books coming out and all these things and her second book is coming out like in october and then we've always had this sort of stable of writers and these books are just like coming out you know when i started when we started desalon and i started putting together my books the death books in one section you know i had like a small little group of books and now it's like yeah, it's it's a it's a cottage industry now. Yeah, yeah, so, and so, including I'm going to throw mine on the pile eventually too. Yeah, that's you know? right. You're you're working on one. Yeah, I'm working on one. So it's um, and mine's a little different. It's not. It, it's kind of this mix of all of my interests, which is you know death and history, of medicine and medical ethics and rare books and I, all this stuff together. It's a very odd um, subject, but so, you know what's interesting for me is I came to death in a different way. Like I spent 30 years as an evangelical Christian where there is no death. Like (laughs) you're going to live forever. Yeah. And when my supernatural credulity evaporated, one of the first things that I realized was like, Oh, like I'm, you know, and I actually had a bicycle accident where I almost died. And so I was like, Oh, I'm going to die. And more importantly for me as a Christian at the time, or as a, as a leaving Christianity guy at the time, it was like, and when I die, I will be dead. And that was for me called everything into question. And all of a sudden I was like, okay, if this life is the only one I have, how do I make the most of it? And so it was death that focused me on life. And I feel like that's, who's that guy at Stanford? The, the, the doctor who wrote the book as he was dying, um, and it was the same kind of thing where he was like, death is a gift. Yeah. Because it, that was when breath becomes air. Is that, the- I think it, I, that was, a, I read, I read that one. There was this, there was this other guy who was, he actually taught a class, like, and he was talking about death while he was dying. Um, and gosh, I, I'll, I'll find it. Yeah. But, but that was my experience. And, and then I started reading old people like Robert Ingersoll way back in the day who, who was sort of like, if we lived forever, we wouldn't love each other at all. Um, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's all death denial stuff. That's all Ernest Becker up and down. So, you know, that Ernest Becker is really like the philosophical cornerstone for what we do. And, you know, he, his personal story is actually really sad if you think about it, it, because it's like, he's this philosophy professor. I think he was at UC Berkeley. And, um, you know, he was doing this work about why we have evil. Like, what is the root of evil? Like, how does these things happen? And, um, he was talking, he, 
finally hit upon this death denial thing and like what death denial is and why how it shakes our like how it shapes and shakes our culture right um and that the idea is that because we are beings that are aware of our eventual mortality it that thing is a really hard concept to grasp and it kind of puts us in this terror management situation where you're trying to manage that knowledge and so a lot of what people do with it is they try to create something of themselves that will persist past the point of their death whether that is other people like you know having children or creating art or some sort of cultural thing or making some sort of mark in society that will exist and keep your name alive or your creation alive after you're gone and so the idea if that is if there's death is the drive death is the thing behind all the things that we do and the reason why culture exists and stuff Um, and that if we don't have death, then there's no rush, right? There's no like push to actually like, there's make... no urgency. Yeah. Yeah. And so the idea, there is totally room for religion within the death positivity movement. It's not, those two things are not mutually exclusive and we have plenty of people who are religious, but a lot of people who aren't religious, that's a problem that they have is like, well, if I know that when I die, that's it, it's over the end. Like I, like my consciousness does not exist the same way it didn't exist during the Renaissance or something like that. Then, okay, there's, this is a pretty short window I have. And what did I waste my time doing so far? And how can I not waste that time? And, you know, how can I make the most out of it and be, live a meaningful life in some way? And then, also when death happens in your life when it comes to you through like other people in your life dying and stuff religion is really good at having rituals in place to walk you through that process right if you are a religious sometimes you feel like you don't have rituals to fall back upon to be comforted by when there's major life transitions. And And so it's not only just, it's funny. You don't just have, it's not just that you don't have rituals. What I found is that people don't have language. Mm -hmm. They don't have language for their grief. They don't have language to, to, of comfort. Yes. They they don't know what to say. Yeah. They're cliches. And then some people just don't say anything, which is not acceptable. And, and then you hear all these, you hear the same things all the time. People say the same things. And some of the things they say to people are like horribly offensive, but they hear it all the time. And because they've never thought about what they should say or never been in the situation or whatever, they, they don't um, really think about what they're saying. It's almost like they're trying to follow some sort of rote kind of, you know, Oh, he's in a better place. It's like, no, don't do that to someone. (laughs) Like, don't say that to someone about, you know, their family member, especially if that person might not believe that there is a better place, or even if they do believe that there's a better place, then they feel guilty that they wish that that person was still here and not in the better place. Right. So like something small, you think you're saying something small, but what you're saying is huge, you know? Yeah. And what's funny is, you know, people often talk about religion has all this great consolations and rituals and language i was a religious lead i was a a christian leader for 30 years stuff wasn't that helpful 
in a lot of cases. And some of the things that people would say did put people in really awkward positions where, where like God must have needed another angel or, you know, like, like she's with Jesus and the person's going like, so I'm supposed to be okay with this. Like, this is part of a plan. Like this is God, this is the loving God who's doing this to me. Yeah. And so, but, but I'm not going to let you off the hook. I need to take you back. Like, cause I, like, to why I got I interested. Know why, yeah. How you got interested in this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, it was, it's not the traditional, I think way that someone might end up being interested in this. Um, I was like, I didn't have some catastrophic thing happen that mm-hmm. sort of turned my whole life towards this work or anything like that. I was, um, you know, working as a librarian still, I'm, you know, a medical librarian. And so that means you like went to college and then went to like library graduate school. Yes. Right. And you became a academic librarian. Right. And it was USC your first job. Yeah. Okay, so you got the really good job at USC. Yep. That's a really good job. It is. And now you're, and, and so like you're a medical librarian mm-hmm. at, over at, at the Keck. Oh, so like you get to be involved with like the terrible scandals. No comment on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've kept wondering. I was like, oh, is, is this going to come up at some point? I was just like, yeah, I. We're just going to let that go. Yeah. Yeah, hugely, I saw it in the newspaper just like everyone else. And, hugely weird. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but 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 so so you became a medical librarian, right? I became a medical librarian, and then uh, so I was always interested in rare books, and I was doing a lot of kind of volunteer work and things in rare books when I was um, in library school, and so our rare book collection. I'm in collections there, and our rare book collection. We have these amazing medical rare books. And so I decided, okay, I want to learn everything I can about these books, right? And so I just started whenever I could to like delve into the rare books and sort of get to know them. And then... You are a true librarian. Yeah, I mean, it's like, okay, if there are some, you know, books from the, you know, 19th, 18th, 17th century up in a room in my library, I'm going to be in there. You know, if I can have time to be in there, I'm going to be in there. I'm going to be poking around and getting to know... uh, the so i started like getting into the sort of broad strokes history stuff medical history stuff in order to make sense of them and so i could teach students when you know give them tours of the rare books and show them why these objects are of interest why these are cool and and the sort of secrets of the book but then also what they tell us about the history of their profession and why they should care right? right and and so one of the things that really struck me when I started reading these things and looking around and kind of just exploring on my own was, you know, okay, so the way that doctors and, you know, medicine have used bodies, have used like the corpse for anatomical learning throughout the years is really interesting. And it's never, from our perspective today, we kind of can't believe the stuff that was okay, even just a hundred years ago or 150 years ago, that there was no concept of consent and that, you know, doctors could just use dead bodies kind of however they want that medical students were sent to go dig a grave graves. robbing. Yeah. And it just, things like that are just incredible. And the experiments that people would do and all, and I'm just like, wow, you know, our, our corpses were these things that were just used for this like scientific advancement without any sort of agency of the person. And of course, you know, who gets used, right. It's like the marginalized people of, of, 
you know, you've got this privileged Right, because class there was the- an understanding. I mean, maybe even then more than now, there was an understanding like, you know, I mean, I think the whole cult of like burying bodies in boxes, like it's bizarre. Like mm-hmm. it's a strange thing. Yeah. But, but back then there was an understanding or a cultural acceptance. Like these bodies are sacred. This stuff, sh- like you're, you, this is, this is, this should be preserved and or or protected and so when they were robbing these graves they weren't robbing rich people's graves yeah yeah so the rich people had the means to not let that happen there were technological sort of advancements things like a mort safe where it's like a metal you know right kind of cage that goes around a grave so that people couldn't dig it up you know there were a lot of things like that but there were also just you know where they were buried what you know, whether they could pay someone to stand sentinel for like three days so the heart, ground would get hard and, you know, that kind of thing. Those were all, there were always class, you know, distinctions there for sure. And there sure. was an understanding that these, that these bodies shouldn't be, like all those doctors misusing bodies and stuff, like it wasn't like it was okay. It was just... Uh, I don't know. I mean, a lot of doctors actually would even do, exp- you know, dissections and experiments on their own family members so it it wasn't necessarily yeah so you you'll read stories about like you know some big doctor i'm I'm blanking on the name but like some big doctor uh dissected his sister and his father and is like you know like it's like the bodies that are there they're scarce you use them when you can you know so i don't even know that it's true that there was like an idea that this isn't okay but we're doing it anyway it was more just like, this is how we learn. This is the only way we can learn about the body is through dead bodies. And so I just got really interested in all the ways that corpses were like used and, and what that means about our bodies and the way we look at bodies and things. And, and so I got, I got interested in sort of doing talks about like sort of for the public kind of about that history and that interesting, uh, sort of viewpoint where we look at the body as something that's like very uh like we sanitize it in a certain way we do a lot of things to it when it's dead to there's a it's very um removed we're very removed from the process of of dead bodies and where you know everything used to happen in the home you know you would die at home and then you would be laid out at home for a wake for a couple of days and then you'd be buried at home or in the churchyard nearby, depending on whether it's an urban or non-urban setting. But it was not, everything was like taken care of by family and everything was done, you know, in this way. And then there became this prof- professionalization sort of thing. And then it was like the dead body is unsanitary. The dead body is dangerous. You it need a professional whisked, to it handle gets whisked it. whisked away. Yeah. And then it's like, now most people die in a hospital and then so you're not you're not dying at home the body goes right to the funeral home it gets done up in a in a way to look lifelike and then it gets put in a concrete box in the ground like a concrete vault in a box in the ground in a like you know it's just a very different way that it was even a hundred years ago and so i was just like wow you know there's there's been these massive massive changes not only in the in way that we culture of yeah bodies. yeah the way that our culture looks at them and specifically through the medical lens but then it kind of opened out for me and i was just like wow this is really fascinating and people don't even realize how very culturally 
specific we treat we look at death and we look at um bodies it's like so specific to our time and place and that even in america uh you know 100 years ago the way that we acted towards these things were totally different and i was just so interested in that but because i was sort of doing like little public talks and things about using some of the images from our rare books to kind of explain about the way that medicine was treating bodies before I think that was when I kind of caught the attention of uh, Caitlin Doty. And then she decided she wanted to, she already had this online collective of sort of academics and artists and writers and morticians that she calls the order of the good death. And she had just started it as a concept and then wanted, decided she was going to kind of take it to the next level. And she wanted to introduce a lot more people um and so she reached out to a number of people and asked them if they wanted to be order members and i was one of them and i didn't really feel like i had done enough work to be in that space you know but i think she saw and and, and if i'm if i understand her she was the order of the good death and the stuff she was working on was more on the process of getting to being a dead body and you you had been studying like what happens to dead bodies and stuff like that but she was it, was she more about like the process of dying and how families are... uh, not necessarily because she's a mortician so she wouldn't be with the dying oh, yeah, yeah what am i thinking yeah she would be with the uh you know with Post-death. the already dead yeah so she was actually doing the doing the work um like the actual hands-on death work whereas my sort of interest was sort of cultural and historical um but also sort of dilettantish, you know, like yeah. just kind of curiosity, like a generalized curiosity about these things. And because the way I look at, at it, uh, I'm a, you know, I'm an academic librarian. Librarians don't need to get PhDs. That's not like part of what we do unless you want to teach librarianship, then you need a PhD. But other than that, you get a master's degree. And the con- the concept of being a librarian, I feel like the reason why it works for me is that you need to know a little about a lot, right? It's sort of this, you need to know enough about a subject that you can go in and find a very specific thing for someone who needs it and about the different levels of information to be able to help someone understand why they need journal information or this certain database or book or whatever and like why what purposes you would need those different things because we're the masters of information right and then it's just you actually have to know something about a subject to know where the information about that subject would be found yes but you you won't know everything about every level so you're not an expert on I'm not an expert on medicine, but I'm an expert on medical information. And that's a big difference, you know? And so that kind of general generalist thing, we, our, our society almost like doesn't value that right now, but you need those people. You need those people to be able to show you, like to show the experts where to go. You know, it's funny. I was listening to Terry Gross the other day, mm -hmm. who's one of my favorite interviewers. I used to work with her. Did you really? Yeah. Cause before I was a librarian, I was a journalist. I worked at WHYY. I'm a Philly guy. Yeah. 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 I grew up in Philly Philly too. Where'd you grow up? Uh, Delaware County. Like where? Ridley. 
I went to, I went to Radnor. High school. <laughs> Where our high schools played each other. And... Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's so funny. That's so weird. It is funny. You don't have the accent either. I had to get rid of mine. It took forever. Well, you know, I can go right back there. <laughs> Yo. You know, I, when Yo, I drink a just... glass of water, like yeah. that water you're just drinking yeah, just right there. Drinking water. Yeah, get some water, eggs. Just drink a water. Hang out. Yeah, eagles. Yeah, eagles. Go eagles. All right, so let's stop that. But like, okay, so, <laughs> so you. So, but Terry Gross was yeah. talking about how that was her thing. Is she was interested in everything, and and she said as an interviewer, one of the things is that she knows a lot about, or she knows a little about a lot of things, and she can talk about music. She doesn't know a lot. She's not an expert about music. Her husband's an expert about music, but she knows enough to to talk to an expert. Yeah. And I think I, I, I think that it's, it's going to come back. I think the value of that way of thinking, I think already people go like, that's the kind of person I want to sit next to at dinner. That's the kind of person that, you know, I can bring over and introduce anybody to them and they'll be able to engage them in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. I think we like those people. Yeah. I think, well, we may not pay them, but we some like people them. say things like, Oh, you know, aren't you worried that you, your job is going to go away because of the internet? It's like, no, not at all. Because, you know, the f- fact that we now have so much more information at our fingertips means you really need someone to be able to sh- show you how to get through that. You know, it's like you need Sherpas to guide you through this like morass of information yeah. and also be able to tell you like this is the quality information. Judgment. I mean, yeah, that's that's a huge thing, especially now with all this fake hashtag fake news stuff. I mean, yikes, you know, uh, being able to, to show people like, how do you, I, how do you sort of, um, evaluate a source to find out whether it's, it's authoritative or not is huge. And so, you know, I think what Caitlin saw in me wasn't necessarily like, she's doing all the death work. She's this, because some of the people in the order are doing like, world changing stuff you know and that's not me but i think what she saw was that sort of a curatorial generalist organizational thing and thought this person could be very useful um and that's pretty much what so how long ago is this it's like 2013 okay so this is not that old new so she reaches out to you and you guys start hanging out yeah yeah pretty quickly so when she reached out to me she reached out to a number of other people and it was we were all sort of on the same email chain like hey do you guys want to be in the order and i started looking at these people and i'm like wow there's really some interesting people they mostly la people no they're all over the place but i was just like wow like there's some really people are doing some really interesting work and that kind of like wouldn't you love to sort of get together and talk to some of these people and so it just went seriously in a matter of days. It went from something like, oh, I wish we could get together and have a party to, well, maybe if it was a conference type thing, maybe my institution would like fund me to go if I was doing like a talk at a conference. And then some of the more, so that was like the academics talking. And then the, some of the non-academics, those sort of more public facing people were like, well, if we're all getting all these great people together, we shouldn't just keep it to ourselves. We yeah. should be like sharing it with the public. The people could be interested in this. And so and I, some of the aesthetic people are like, let's make it cool. Yeah. I'm, well, I think that was always just kind of baked in weirdly. I, I, the aesthetic thing is, is interesting. Cause there's an aesthetic to it. There is, there is. And it's, it's funny though, but the aesthetic thing is not as, 
when people say like, oh, like it's a bunch of goth girls or something. If you actually look at Caitlyn or anybody like there, she, she like never wears black. First of all, <laughs> like she has dark hair, but that's her hair color, you know, but it's funny how people project things onto someone, you know? Yeah. I mean, she always wears really bright colors. She has like a really like kind of lively, huge like, winning smile. Yeah, yeah. No, she's charming. Yeah. 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 So it's like, I'm not saying that goths aren't charming and, and whatever, but it's, it's not, she doesn't have a traditional goth look, but people kind of project it onto her, um, which is interesting. Uh, but there, yeah, there are people who definitely go for that, like goth look in our, in our group and everything too but yeah there is a sort of aesthetic there's a lot of bangs going on um i think i'm the only like not banged person um and yeah there there is a certain look that tends to happen around around this but you must um, all are are you drawing like i'm just thinking of the 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 people that i met um through hospice mm -hmm. and these were people that were really consumed with the idea of the dying can can be a a growth experience or a life experience. The the the, the philosoph almost like the Stoics and the Epicureans. They're sort of like death is a part of the bargain, mm -hmm. and it's a good bargain. Yeah, life life is a good bargain, and has a. I, I think you talked about the arc of like a beginning and a middle and an end. Right. So, so some of these people that are being drawn to you, they're full, they're philosophical and they're really, I, I don't want to like, it, it's called the death salon, but in some sense, what they're really asking is how do I, how do I have a good life? Yeah. I mean, for me, that's a thing that's become totally central. And so it started off with this just generalized interest kind of thing. And then when we all got together for that first death salon, it was really like a quasi, it was like half public, half private. It was really like 30 invited people. But then we had a couple events that were sort of open to the public. And then what ended up happening was, so we had one event that was at night and it was supposed to be a sort of almost like death salon after dark thing where it was like more of a performance based thing. And Caitlin was interested in performance-based stuff, too, because she had a theater background as well. And so it was just kind of, oh, yeah, let's, like, throw a thing. We'll have, we'll have short talks, but we'll have music. We'll have all sorts of stuff. And, you know, we put this thing out there. We didn't have a name. No one knew what a death salon was. No one knew what the order was, really. You know, maybe mm -hmm. a little bit, but not general public. And then we come, we put on this event, and, like, 300 people show up and we're like, whoa, you know, okay. There's interest here. Yeah. And then the Atlantic did a feature on us. And after that, it was like, you know, just shot off. Like people were really interested. Um, of course, there were like a lot of crummy comments on the internet too. And, and whatever, well, uh, because of the way we look or, you know, the way that the people in the pictures looked a certain aesthetic. Some people use that to try to demean what we were doing. Um, but then it, it was interesting because right after that, then it just kind of took off. And then the next one in London was like a three day event with like, it was just a whole big thing. And then it just, after that more and more, places were like contacting us and being like hey can we do one here can we do one there and then it got to a point where pretty quickly where we're like okay we need to only do one a year because this is way too much 
it takes so much out of everybody, but yeah, it takes a ton of work. And you know, each one I start planning it more than a year in advance. And so this one in Seattle, like people will fly in for this thing. People yeah. We have people flying from Australia okay. and Europe and some people go to every single one. Um, so, and then there's local people who get interested and then the media there's like, you know, it went, it went from being like, Oh, I think around the death lawn in a certain city, I might do a little local media so people can hear about it, whatever. But now it's like all year long, we do national media. So, okay. So like, and not that I'm not fascinated by this and I am, but like these conversations are mainly for me. Like, like I'm very selfish about them. And so like, I'm fascinated by like the process of what I would consider almost a kind of a community building project that you've done. Yeah. You guys have gotten together. You, you drew people together around a shared interest and then it took on a life of its own. And all of a sudden you realize like, this is sort of about death, but it's also about life and how do we live? Like I'm, I'm fascinated oh, yeah. by that. Yeah. But. Sorry. I keep getting off the, the on tangents there, but yeah, it's like, so what I found there, there's a thing that happens when you go to death salon, I think. And, um, it started from the first one and then each one, it gets more and more where the fact that every single person who's there, they come from all these different perspectives and all of our, our presenters and everything, they come from vastly different fields, different perspectives on it, but you hear talk after talk or experience about death. Everything is some other angle of it. There's this cumulative kind of effect that takes place and you would think, and most people think that when you go, that it would be depressing, but it's the opposite. There is a ton of laughing. Uh, people really kind of grow together in this certain way. A lot of friendships are formed. New collaborations are formed among people who are either presenters, but also just attendees will get like, you know, have these like meaningful things that, that persist after the initial like getting together. And it's really like, it sort of puts this, um, yeah, the, the sort of finite element of life and, and the, the unbelievable amount of variety of the way that you could die or the experience you could have or the way you can approach something and then giving people like tons of options and choice and, and sort of background. Um, yeah. And the whole thing of like, if you get a bunch of people together. And everybody's talking openly about death, which means they're really talking openly about finitude, mortality, limitation. Mm -hmm. In a sense, that creates a very free environment to go like, what are you going to do with yours? Yeah. Like, how, how did yours work out? What's your story? What's my... And so I think that when you create that space, it's going to be vibrant. Mm -hmm. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be like, oh, we're allowed to talk about this. I was listening to... Um, a guy talking about he visited a a survivors group of people whose kids had been shot and these people get together from all over the country and and and, and he played the picnic that they were having and they were laughing and they were talking about their relatives because they had this shared experience yeah. of this trauma mm -hmm. but that also meant that they felt connected to each other and then they were talking about like yeah Jojo how are we helping Jojo get over this thing and oh you know Mary's she opened a new business and that's so good for her after what happened we all need to go support her and and so I'm not surprised that you say this isn't morbid or it, this isn't sad mm -hmm. there's a sort of an energy there here's my question 
I think like fancy death salon sounds amazing, like trademarked death salon. Mm-hmm. Like we were talking about this and you're like, you know what? Other people are starting to go like, maybe we should all, maybe we should get together. Maybe 10 of us should get together in a living room and talk about death. Yeah. And you're like, please do, do that. Don't call it a death salon. Yeah. Just because it confuses people. That's right. the only thing. Right. So we're not trying to be like, we, you know, we have only this we need, get to talk about death. We're like Coca-Cola or something right. that is not like that at all. But it's really like for real people will see because the name is recognizable, they'll get confused if they think that someone is coming to their that Caitlin's going to be in their town and yeah. she's not, you yeah. know, it's a motorcycle. Like, it's like, it's like call it a motorcycle club. But if you call it a Harley club, people will think they're going to be Harley Davidson's there. Yeah. And there yeah. are a lot of different kinds of conversations about death. Yeah. You should have one. Yes, please. Like, and that's so, you know, death cafe is people confuse us, but we're, all, we have the same mindset. It's the same kind let's, of let's make it safe to talk about this yes stuff. it's like opening conversation blah blah, blah but their their me- their kind of construct is different from ours in a lot of ways right and they have certain rules and you have to abide by the rules to be called a death cafe so i think for some people they're like well death salon charges money and i want to charge money so I'm going to call myself a death salon because I can't charge money if I call myself death cafe. That's not good because we charge money because the venues and things that we get are expensive. In, and you're bringing in fancy people. We have to fly people in. Yeah. It's not a neighborhood thing. It's like a destination thing. It's nah, just a different that. thing. That's all. And and so it's fine. Like, yeah, my only issue with people who want to do an event so it's like literally call it anything else but here, here's Use the thesaurus like just like call it two so different here, words. here's where i'm going with this. that's but, the only bit because i said like these conversations are for me yeah I mean, not really but like they sort of are like the thing that i was thinking as i was coming over to talk with you is i feel like whenever the mortality stuff comes up there's always a bunch of science oriented guys who come to me and say and I, and I like they're transhumanist and they're like, we can live forever and it's all a matter of technology. And like, you can download your brain and all this stuff. Yeah. And I feel like it's, that's always guys. It feels like to me, like I, I, and I know that's a, you know, it's, it's not, but they're the ones who write me. Mm-hmm. When I think about this stuff, the death positivity, I find it's predominantly women. Yes. And I'm convinced there's a relationship between, and and what I find is that when the death positivity people show up and they're women, they encounter fierce misogyny. Yes. Lots (laughs) of people are like, like they make fun of their bodies. They make, like you probably get trolled on the internet. Like, you know, like, and Caitlin, my gosh, she must just be like, I can't imagine the kind of, commentary she gets just because her look would be one that would just draw out the misogynist Mm -hmm. in droves it feels like yeah i mean it really and there's even like weird internalized misogyny like you'll see things even with other like with women writers or something like that when they do a piece on uh death positive people i mean we're, we're super grateful for good coverage for sure and we get a lot of it but it, it is so rare to have an article that doesn't mention what one of us is wearing or yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you never hear that they about never do a guy. That about me. You, those, like if it, there's an article about transhumanism, you don't hear about the guy's outfit or that yeah. he's 
tall and lean or that he has like a certain haircut or okay. a thing. And can we never. Just, yeah. Can we just stop right here and say like, I'm wearing a really well-fitted short sleeve plaid uh, blue and black shirt made by Abercrombie and Fitch and some really, you know, stylish jeans. I just, you know, I don't well, care what you're wearing. Yeah. I just want to talk about me. I am wearing, actually, I will say what I'm wearing because I am supporting one of our death positive artists. This is a, a shirt uh, yeah. from AJ uh, Hawkins created a shirt that says uh, deathlings always say die. And I literally, I practically live in this shirt. I cannot stop wearing it. It's like my favorite shirt right now. And, um, and the part of the reason why I love it, besides that it's super comfortable and it is, is that um, Caitlin came up with the word deathling and now it's on a t-shirt. How cool is that? Like to me, like we went from, she, you know, she started calling people who watched her videos deathlings as a sort of like, you know, just thing that she did. Yeah. And then here we are a few years later and it's people are making clothing with the word deathling on it or death positive or whatever. And we think that's awesome. So it, it's, it's well, I think amazing. You guys are, I mean, I think you are creating language and creating space for this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. but I'm noticing like, and, and here's my theory. Mm-hmm. My theory is, is that the, the people that want to live forever and that want to eliminate mortality, that one of the ways that they know that you have to do that is you have to kind of like transcend your body. Mm-hmm. And so there are people that like, in a sense, that whole way of thinking sort of says bodies and decrepitude and, you know, decay is bad. Yes. And I think that that tends to like then translate like if bodies are bad, women are bad because mm-hmm. women are, I feel like their identities oftentimes are in our society, at least are more associated with their bodies. Like, what are you wearing? Like how much, how do you, how much do you weigh? Like, what do you look like? Yeah. And so we're forced to be more in our bodies, whether we want to or not, we can't pretend that all of what we are is a a brain in a jar. Like, you know, (laughs) like a a consciousness on the cloud or that you're not being evaluated on the basis of your body. Yeah, all the evidence points to the contrary about the way that we're treated, you know, and and so... So you know your bodies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're forced to reckon with the reality of our bodies all the time. Um, And I think that that is definitely, you know, because people ask us all the time, like, why are there so many women? And it's taken us a while to kind of, like, even just from the first death salon, looking around and being like, wow, it's mostly women, you know, that and, and the funeral industry had traditionally mostly been men. That's also changing. Um, you know, Caitlin has two pictures on her refrigerator of of um, f- uh, mortuary school classes. And one was from like 1970 and one is hers, right? And the 1971 is all, all white men. dudes. And then hers is almost all Latina women. Interesting. Like that much of a, of a change, you know, it's a huge, there's a huge change going on in even just the actual traditional industry. And, and so why are women drawn to this work? You know, what, what is that? Well, I think part of it is that traditionally it was, you know, this was work that was done in the family and that the women were like running the family. And then when it was made professional it was like oh men are professionals and men do this thing and then so that kind of there's almost like a a reclamation of this sort of like i think think that's part of it this work but it's also because women 
have traditionally done home-based like work and family-based work then it's devalued and that it's like when it becomes professionalized and it's men that's doing it and it's scientific because you can't do a home embalming or something like that then it becomes somehow seen as more um important like the work is more important um but you know i i I, I think like i'm just thinking out loud here but Mm -hmm. i just think about menstruation yeah, I think about it too, actually. I, <laughs> I wasn't necessarily going to go there, but we can totally go there. I just, I just think about like bleeding mm-hmm. and being like, and being aware that like your, your, your mindset is being affected by your chemicals and like that you're not just like this kind of spirit yeah. in, in, inhabiting a body, but that your body in, in is your identity in some way. I just think women are just so much more aware of that. And, mm-hmm. and I think about Donald Trump I, I, because it feels really clear to me that he's disgusted by women's bodies mm-hmm. and that he's disgusted by aging. Yeah. Like when he went that, when he hit on that or he, he commented on the French president's wife's like, Oh, you look good. You know, yeah. she's in shape. Isn't she in shape? Like, and I just, I just thought like he represents to me, I think, misogyny but he also represents me like the root of it seems to be in like a disgust yes of bodies do you remember what happened when hillary had to go to the bathroom yes and he like lost it yes yeah (laughs) yes it's like oh no she has a body that has needs and the fact that her needs had to be addressed even in a private way but that she had to take a break to go deal with that was so repulsive to him that he like couldn't handle it. So, so I just feel like, and, and I don't want to go off on all the reasons we don't like Donald Trump, but, but, but like, I feel like he represents like, and, the, and, and so when I think about like, would Donald Trump be excited about the technology of ending aging? Yeah. Would absolutely. he be excited about like getting downloaded or, or being frozen? And like, I go like, I almost guarantee you he would mm-hmm. like he and all those tech guys who want to live forever. And I go, could I imagine a Puerto Rican woman in East LA signing up? And I just can't. I, I, I and you say, but w- wouldn't you want to live forever? And I go, like, I, I not that, nah. I, I just, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that you know, yeah, the menstruation thing that you bring up—that's something that's often like come into my mind. I don't want to speak for everyone in the death positivity movement on that, but it's like something for me where I just feel like you're you have all or i have all these like thing the plans and i live in my head in a certain way and i'm doing all these things in the world and whatever but then you know your body asserts itself all the time regardless of what you're doing and what your plans are and i think that that is something that kind of it's like this tiny little reminder all the time that like you live in a body yeah yeah or menopause and it does stuff or menopause and it affects you. which at the end of all that menstruating mm-hmm. there comes this moment where your body says to you like you're not dead yet but you're getting there yeah there's a decline that's happening and it's gonna affect you in ways that you didn't necessarily anticipate and it's going to like screw up your life a little bit like especially the transition part sorry yeah especially the transition part is like you yes. know it it you but it's telling you like there's chapters yeah that there's and you know there's a time that you're alive before you have this happen to you and then the 
happening is often traumatic right depending on how it you know it comes about and then you have this whole long time of dealing with this thing regardless of everything else that you do and then somehow at the end of it when it goes away you think it would be a relief but it's actually not you know and then yeah and so you know like your life cycle is super apparent in this way that it's not for men i mean you of course like men go through puberty puberty and stuff like that and 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 so that's the thing with the transhumanist thing that kind of gets me is like and some of them i just have fundamental disagreements with that will never be resolved because it's the way we look at stuff where some i i got in a conversation with one recently which was interesting um but one of the things he was saying was he doesn't think Alzheimer's is a disease. He thinks aging is the disease and that Alzheimer's is one of the ways that it's expressed. Right. And I don't like the, the way he was describing it, which is interesting. Don't get me wrong. But the way he was describing it was like, we all have a little cancer. We all have a little Alzheimer's. We all have a little whatever. But the thing that jumps up to assert itself will be different in different people. Like if you, if live, you let down your guard, if you live long if enough you, one, you and you don't stop the process, then one of them will get, get you, you. Right. Okay. You know, I, I could see how you would think that, but to me, it's Alzheimer's is a disease and that it, you know, it doesn't happen to everyone. Um, like not everyone dies of Alzheimer's, not everyone gets it. But you know what? I bet you if, if everybody lived eternal, like if you lived like to, to be 200, like, like that's, I have a friend who's a cancer doctor. He says like people get cancer now more because they live longer. You you didn't used to live long enough to get cancer. Right. Exactly. I think Alzheimer's, like if you, if if we cure cancer and we, then everybody will get Alzheimer's. Yeah. Like eventually something is going to get you, right? Something's, yeah, something's going to get you and certain things come about at different times of your life generally. Um, but I think fighting, trying to cure aging or cure death is like trying to cure puberty. You know what I mean? Like puberty is a life stage it's not a disease and it 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 wreaks havoc on you in certain ways and it can be pretty uncomfortable and upsetting but if you believe that there is a natural kind of arc of of your life and and you need to get from one stage to the other then then you wouldn't like view it you wouldn't view puberty as like a disease to be cured because you need to get you yeah, need yeah, it to yeah. get to the or, maturity. Or tra- you don't say that any transhumanist doesn't come to you and go like, here's the ideal. The ideal is we're going to not only eliminate death and you're going to live forever in your perfect 20 year old body, but we're also going to eliminate childhood. You're not going to have to go through all that messy stuff of acquiring. We're going to, we're going to be able to spring you out 20 years old and in good shape. And stay that they way. instinctively know that like, no, 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 there's something precious about the process, Right. There's something really, and and so they instinctively know that like the process of getting to be 20 where you're acquiring stuff, that's really good. But then they go like, but the process of gradually letting the, letting go of things, that's not really good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I just go like, if it's, yeah, it's, 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 it is that whole thing of like, can't we just embrace the process and recognize too, that like, even if you're not, even if we weren't we live on a planet with finite resources. And so yeah. we have to like make room for other people to 
have their turn. Yeah. And so some of the transhumanists are, you know, when they try to argue about the population thing, which I think is a really big deal with that idea, um, they say, well, you know, like basically society will write itself in the way they write, might write itself is to not have children right that if there's too many people that you just stop having children it's like so why is it that your generation gets to be the one that lives forever and then no one else gets a chance to like live you know i I find that call your mother and ask her if it was or your father and ask them if it was fun for them to watch you learn to walk because it's one of the most enriching i mean you just had a baby yeah like one of the most enriching experiences of my life one of the i mean i mean it was hard and painful and ridiculous but like it was very meaningful to raise my kids. Yeah. And if you said to me like, well, listen, you know, this generation gets to live forever and then we just like stop having new ones. Yeah. I go like, man, that's not, I, I, I'm a humanist in the yeah. sense of like, I'm genuinely loyal to the human experience. And, 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 and the essence of that experience is on one level, fi- finitude. Mm-hmm. And on the other level, um, moving through the stages and then having relationships with people at different stages than I'm at. And so like, yeah, like if I don't keep moving, I'll never know what it was like for my father to be 80. Yeah. And I want, like, I know him now, but if I make it to 80, he won't be around, but I'll, I'll know him better than I know him now. Yeah. Cause I'll understand something about what life looks like from 80. Yeah, I mean, I'm really going through all this right now in a big way. Like, it's interesting when people find out that I just had a kid, their first question is always like, well, are you still into this death stuff? Because I'm going to get, yeah, way more than ever do I appreciate this. Way more. I mean, you know, oh God, I could talk about it forever, really. But it's like the, you know... The, the pregnancy process and the birthing process and realizing like, okay, I'm in this body and it's, there's a lot that's physically happening to it and stuff could go wrong. Like, like I could not come out of it, you know, or she could not come out of it or whatever. Like, like I'm this little, I'm this like bag of meat and all these things are You're happening to it. And it is very contingent. It could be really scary. Yeah. And so I made sure to finally get all my, all every nuts to bolts paperwork everything together and i was joking to my husband so we're toddling around i'm like toddling around all pregnant going to like notaries and stuff to get everything every single thing and making sure that both of us had those conversations about like the deeper conversations not just about you know do i want a dnr or something like that but like at what point, and Dr. Uh, Atolga one day brings this up in his book too, which I thought was really important. Didn't you love that book? Mort- yeah, It I was do. Mortality, right? Yeah, uh, it's Being Mortal. Being Mortal. Yeah, yeah, I love that book. I do. And it, it was sort of like, at what point like, is a loss of a function or a thing you can do make it so your life isn't really like worth living to you anymore? Like, what is what is that for you? What is the thing that you would yeah, it's like if you can't walk your dog anymore. Yeah. Or are you okay to not be able to walk as, as long, long as you as can you, read? Yeah, if your brain is like functioning in a certain way, or you can communicate, or you can eat on your own, or you can do like everyone actually has a different line. I feel like it's super did, personal, too, yeah. and you need to have that thought process in that conversation, you know, because it's not a thing you can just guess about somebody at all. 
like not only what they want done with their dead body but what they want the end of their life to look like is like really really personal and so we went through that whole thing when I was pregnant because I you know I had a little not even just a little but kind of a lot of anxiety around the birthing process and like what if I died I was actually really worried about what would happen to me physically during the birthing process so I I even like you know I'm not much of a like a meditation person or anything, but I got really into this book called Mindful Birthing, which was like using mindfulness practice in order to to focus myself on my breathing so that I wouldn't do things like panic attack breath myself out of consciousness, for instance, because that was the kind of thing that I knew could happen to me because I like I was really, really worried about getting through the actual birthing process then the whole recovery process was so much more intense and crazy than I anticipated that I'm really still recovering six months later and I'd not expect well, no, it to we be were the talking case. about this before 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 where, where yeah. I was saying like you know it's like being in a car accident in the mm-hmm. sense of like it changes everything like your daily routine is different you're breastfeeding like your, your relationships have changed because people aren't as available to you in the way that they were and you're not as available to them and and they look at you differently and your body your body has changed and that changes the way that like you feel at the grocery store when you're walking down the aisle and like everything changes it's tectonic Mm -hmm. and um yeah yeah so like the death positivity thing is actually even more important because not only was i like insistent on getting all my stuff together i was joking with my husband like you know if i died in childbirth and i didn't have my papers in order i would die again of embarrassment like for not for being doing what i do and still not having my shit together basically and for being in denial yeah for being like oh it's okay this isn't gonna happen to me plenty of time yeah i was like no no i need to make sure that i'm like really ready but also i wouldn't want to do that to my kid i wouldn't want to leave my kid with all these like unanswered questions and things suddenly the burden is like you know shifting that burden to it to a kid is like too much as well so i just wanted to make sure like everything was was on top of it but like being so much more viscerally in my own body as a like you know pregnant woman and then through the birth and then as a nursing new mother mom, nursing mom all that stuff it's like i suddenly found myself so much more empathetic to like everyone where i'll walk down the street and you see like an older person like struggling to walk and i just like my heart would just like break because i'd be like I'm having a really hard time right now, but presumably I'm going to get back to a, like full capacity, but that person is not. And like, and, I, and down the road, you, you I'm you getting, will. yeah, but it, like, I will get there if I live long enough, I will get to, to a point where my physical like abilities are diminishing. And I know the frustration of not being able to get your body to do what your brain right, wants it to do. Right. And I never really felt that before. And it was just like this thing where I was like, I'm so much more, my empathy is so much stronger for, but isn't for there people. isn't flip side to that though too? Like I was with, you know, I was with my aging parents um, over last weekend. We, mm-hmm. we all went on a family vacation and I was very aware of my, my folks moving slow. Mm-hmm. And they were very aware and we were talking about it. Yeah. So I sit down to have this first dinner on Friday night and it's, uh, you know, bratwurst and corn on the cob and it was really good um i know i shouldn't be eating meat i know it's terrible but like 
Oh, it was so good. And I'm tasting it and I'm realizing like my parents are tasting it. My mom's raving about it. I'm going like, you can still taste this. And she's like, oh, like I, I didn't say it like, you can still taste this. I was like, I'm watching her. I'm going like, we're both enjoying this food. And there are certain things that she can't do anymore, but there's still this. Yeah. And when I came out of my bike crash and I almost died, I remember the first few meals I had afterwards going like, oh my gosh, like I'm so lucky to be eating this food and food tasted better. Yeah. And I thought it would go away and it never did because the awareness of my mortality, the more aware I become of it, the more I go, I won't always be able to walk. Mm-hmm. This walking thing is amazing. Yeah. I won't always be able to see. Like, and I feel like, you know, even having a child and going through that and like having your body messed with, to the degree that you still have functionality, you probably appreciate it more. Yeah, I do. There's, I mean, there's so much about it where, you know, even when a certain stage or something is hard, I'm still looking at it and being like, I'm trying to be present in this moment and remember what this is like because it's not going to be forever. And it's just like this whole other thing, you know, with the baby watching her go through different stages and stuff. Uh, we talked offline a little bit about patience. And although I'm an extremely impatient person, I feel like with myself, I found this whole other patience that I didn't know I had with the baby where it doesn't matter what she's doing. I'm like so empathetic about what she's going through and why she's upset with something or whatever that I, it just like, if she's screaming and crying about a thing, I'm just like, Oh, this must be so frustrating for you that you can't do this thing or can't express it or whatever. And just, yeah, watching her do these, like go through all these processes. It's, it's so fascinating, fascinating, but it's also just like, I try to be in it and I, I have, my life is like so crammed with stuff and, and I just like, I really basically, as we talked about before, like have four full-time jobs because I have yeah, the, the librarian, the librarian, desk salon and writing a book. That's insane. No one should be doing that much stuff. But what I find is that, and what death positivity has done for me, and I'm so grateful to it for this is that, I will stop and make note of a moment that's important. And I never, I would just be so focused my whole life on like moving to the next thing and getting to the next plateau that I didn't even stop back to like, I didn't even stop to reflect on the things that were being accomplished. So we mentioned we're from Philadelphia area, right? And the Muter museum is like one of my favorite places on earth. It was it's really important My to me. My dad's obsessed with that place. Yeah, it was always like so important. And then when I got to bring Dessalon back to the Muter Museum and I got to put it on in the Muter Museum and we had private tours for people. And then I By even... By the way, if you're not from Philly, the Muter Museum is this museum of medical oddities. Mm-hmm. And like there are like in jars, there are three-headed babies and really weird stuff that was collected hundreds of years ago Mm -hmm. and it is kind of this gothic like wonderland 
Yeah. It's, I mean, it's really, you know, there are other pathological museums in the world, but this is like a really special place. They also have a sort of fun attitude and, and, you know, now that I've been there so many times and worked with the people there, the people there are amazing. And it's just like this, I jokingly kind of call it the happiest place on earth, but it really is my happy place. Like this is, this place is just everything about it. I love it. And I was able to bring my event into the space and share it with everybody, you know, and then being able to come back to my hometown, like, and get, bring, bring my thing in. And then people from all different parts of my life were able to see the thing that I did. And, you know, my mom came out to, to the Mütter and that was a really big deal for her. Cause you know, she took the train into the city, which is huge for her. And, you know, overcoming fears for her to do that and stuff like that one of my best friends throughout my whole life uh we've been friends since sixth grade is my friend scott and he is an amazing photographer and i got him to shoot the event you know and i was granted permission which is almost never given to for us to do a photo shoot in the museum of me caitlin and sarah chavez who's our um uh executive director of the order it's like the three of us kind of run a run lot the of deal. it yeah and there was we were super exhausted we had like this long night the night before um my lift didn't show up and i was running super late and we had to get there to do this photo shoot i couldn't find like right. i was looking for for one of them, I couldn't find them, blah, blah, blah. We're like trying to get this thing done. We had this very small window to do it before we had to go back and in, get up in front of 300 people and kind of, you know, start the process again, you know, like, like start the second day and we're running around trying to shoot these photos and whatever. And then Scott and I, so then we started running up the marble steps. Like we did the photo shoot as quickly as we could. And we started running up the marble steps of the museum to get back to go like speak in front of all these people. And I just like grabbed him. I like grabbed his arm and I stomped him on the marble steps. I was like, wait a second. Like we just shot photos in the Muter Museum. Like we just did this. Like are you... Could we stop and just... Could we just take a second this moment? to appreciate the fact that we both got this like incredibly privileged experience that is important to both of us for different reasons. And then we got to do it together because we're friends and like you're a photographer who just got to shoot in the muter, which is like no one's allowed to do. And I just had my portrait shot in the muter, which no one's allowed to do. And like, I'm here in my hometown with like some of my oldest friends and my mom and like this thing. And there are hundreds of people waiting for us to go like back up there. But like, this is a big deal. Let's take a second. Yeah, yeah. Like just a sec. Like we just stopped for a second and I just took a second. I'm like, wow, this is huge. Okay, now we can run and go do the rest of this stuff. But like I would have never taken that second. I would have never stopped. I would have just like run through the whole thing and not taken the moment to like acknowledge that this was like yeah. a huge life moment for me, you know? You know what? I'm, I'm, it's funny, like I have lots more questions lots more things I'm interested in. I'm not going to ask any of them. I'm going to stop right now. It's like <laughs> that story is as good a capsulation as I can imagine of the upside of death positivity. You know, 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a little teary <laughs> as, as I say this, you know, because for me to hear a woman like you who's, you know, worked hard and done all these things and like all this stuff, but to like, to recognize like, yeah, if I wasn't thinking about things this way and if I wasn't having this conversation, I would have missed, I would have missed my life. Yeah. I would have missed, I would have missed my life. And I, I think as I, as I move around the city and I move around this world, I meet a lot of people and I'm pretty convinced that they're missing their lives because they're so anxious not to die. You know, in your shirt it says, deathlings always say die. And I think so much of our society is about never saying die, never looking at dying, never acknowledging dying and fighting like hell to not die. Mm-hmm. And that was a beautiful story that, that to me encapsulates the whole thing. So I just, rather than asking you a bunch more questions, I just kind of want to thank you. Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I know that like some of the earlier questions are just kind of going around in circles, but I'm glad we got to get to a place where you sort of saw what I was really getting at. Like all the, you know, there's been so much going on in my life in the past couple of years, like the places I've been and the things I've done and, and the experiences I've had, whether it's like an unbelievable meal or like having a child, you know, I mean, like these things are huge, like, but what death positivity brings me, what it's brought to me and the thing that just kind of really makes me so grateful that I found it and that, you know, is, and that I found this community and these inspiring people that I deal with every day is that, yeah, that I'm able to really, no matter how busy I get, that I'm able to take moments to reflect and stop and and be in the moment because I'm not a person who would have been, yeah, allowed yeah. myself to be in the moment, like, ever. All I did my whole life was run, up, like, was, like, run uphill. That was just, you know, it, it was just a nonstop just trying to, like, escape my, like, you know, class that I grew up in and try to get myself an education and get a job and find a career and find my way in this and that. And like, you know, meet a husband and do that. All those things that you try to do with your life. It just always felt like this, like upward climb, just climbing, climbing, moving, moving, no stop, no sleep, no, you know, and there were a lot of things that happened during that time period that were really important. And I look back and I realized I didn't really take a moment to kind of like acknowledge how important these things were. And I don't do that anymore. Thank you for this conversation. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Megan Rosenblum. What a cool person. I hope you dug the conversation. If you want to find out more about Megan, you can go to bartcampola.org and we'll have links there. Or you can go straight on to Megan's website, meganrosenbloom.com. And uh, and you'll find stuff, you'll find connections to the death salon and all sorts of other cool stuff. Um, yeah, she's wicked cool. And Robert Ingersoll is wicked cool too. And uh, 
Since that was a long conversation, I'm going to give you the shortest of all Ingersoll quotes. When I was a kid going to Sunday school, if you had to memorize a verse and you couldn't, you, you just didn't have it in you, you would always memorize the shortest verse in the Bible, which is Jesus wept. And I don't know if this is the shortest sentence in Ingersoll's um, collected works, but it's a, it's sure a candidate. Robert Ingersoll says it real simple. God is a guess. There it is. Shortest Ingersoll quote I got for you. And I'll catch you next time with another cool conversation. See you soon. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit bartcampolo.org.